let's pray as we get started. Father, we thank you for the time of worship and singing and praise that we could offer to you this evening. And we're grateful, Lord, for your bringing us here and our having an opportunity to commune with you and to study your word. So guide and direct us, we ask, for we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Well, if you have uh, the Harmony of the Gospels, we are on page 11, so we're making progress. We only have like 285,000 pages to go, but we're on page 11 and we're making progress. But we're on paragraph 14, and uh, let me make sure that this is all operating and we are a go. Uh, Paragraph 14 begins with, or begins the section dealing with the visit of the Magi. We looked at some of the infancy accounts of the Messiah. Now we're about two years into his birth because the Magi will come uh, to Bethlehem when Yeshua is at least two years old or thereabouts. So as we look at this section, first of all, the Magi um, is plural, so there were at least there were at least two of them. We don't know how many uh, for certain. There could have been three. Uh, There could have been 300. We really don't know. But there was enough of them that they caused quite a bit of a stir and excitement at their coming. So there were probably more than two or three of them who came. Magi in the ancient world were astronomers, but the connection between astrology was always recognized. There was always that looking to the stars for information and uh, some kind of Direction that the creator or the sovereign divine deity uh, could provide. So in the ancient world, there wasn't really a lot of distinction made between astrology as we think of it today and astronomy, the study of the stars. But they came from the east. So they're coming from the region of Mesopotamia, the region of Babylon. And the question that they raise, and interestingly enough, this is the first question in the Brit Hadashah, the first question in the New Testament, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? So there's a really interesting parallel. The first question in the book of Genesis is, where are you? Right? As uh, God calls out for Adam, as he hides. And the first question the Magi ask are, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And so being Gentiles coming from the east, the question we would ask is, how did they know anything about the Messiah, the Messianic concept, and what would cause them to think that whatever they saw, this star, this burning object, uh, had something to do with the Messiah, and why would they come to Jerusalem? So these are kind of interesting questions, and there are some answers that we can give to it. Another question is, why would they want to come and worship him? Of course, Gentile kings from the east knew of the God of Israel, but they did not worship him. Of course, Israel was brought into exile by the Babylonians. Uh, The northern kingdom of Israel, the Jewish people and the ten tribes were brought into Assyria, northeastern uh, northeast of the land of Israel, but they always were antagonistic to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So what is it that is prompting them? There are a couple of things to think about. First of all, the thing that attracts the Magi attention is this star that appears in the east. In verse 1 of Matthew's account, It says, when Yeshua was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east 
<clears throat> excuse me, and are, <clears throat> and are come to worship Him. So five things about the star in the east that would reveal that it is not an ordinary star or a constellation. First of all, the star is referred to as His star. That is, it is the Messiah's star, uniquely His and representative of Him. Second thing is, the star appears and disappears on at least two occasions in this text. You can see this in verse 3, and where they saw, we saw His star, and we see it later in verse 9. I don't know why that has 8 there, but <clears throat> probably just a typo. That the star will reappear. So it's a unique star. Thirdly, the star moves from east to west because it's taking them from the east to the west. And if they travel the Fertile Crescent, then it would also have had to go north and south, particularly because they're going to go to Bethlehem from Jerusalem. So the star is moving in strange patterns. It moves from east to west. It also moves from north to south. And ultimately, the star hovers over one particular home in Bethlehem. And you see that in verse 11. They came into the house and saw the young child that the star stood over. That's found in verse 9. Till it came and it stood over where the young child was. So the star is unique. So this is not an ordinary constellation, but something that stands apart. The word in Greek for star merely means radiance or brilliance or burning object. And it would appear that this is a reference to the Shekinah glory. And there have been studies that you can uh, investigate that trace the manifestation of the star. First in Genesis, or the Shekinah glory, where in Genesis it says, let there be light, the light of God's glory. The glory of God that uh, appears in a pillar of fire during that sacrifice that it goes between with regard to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15. And there are many other references. In Ezekiel, we find that the Shekinah glory hovers over the mercy seat. And in chapters 9 to 11, I think it is, or 8 to 11, in the book of Ezekiel, we have the theme of Ichabod. The glory is departed. And uh, what you read in Ezekiel is that the glory of God that's in the Holy of Holies over the mercy seat lifts up, moves through the temple or the holy place area out of the temple itself, out of the beautiful gate, and then it hovers over the, the mountain east of Jerusalem, which is the Mount of Olives, and then it ascends into heaven. And interestingly enough, Yeshua does the same thing. He's going to ascend into heaven from the Mount of Olives. And the book of Zechariah tells us that at some point in the return of the Messiah, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, and then he will enter into the city of Jerusalem. And so there is a strong connection between the Shekinah glory, the Shekinah glory's manifestation, and the presence of the Messiah. So I think we're seeing it here, leading the Magi to the place where Messiah is born. We'll see the Shekinah glory in the life of Messiah as well. In Matthew 17, on the Mount of the Transfiguration, it says, A bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice spoke from the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. The Shekinah glory is present. And then at his death, when it says that for the space of some three or three hours, that it was darkness, is because the Shekinah glory has receded from the Messiah. Why? Because he's taking on the sin of the world. And when the Messiah ascends into the presence of God in Acts chapter 1, it says that a cloud received them out of their sight. 
And then later, Yeshua will tell us, but later, chronologically, Yeshua tells us that when he returns, he will come on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. And the Shekinah glory will reappear once more when the Lord returns. So at this point, as Messiah comes, the Shekinah glory is leading uh, people to him. Much like it led the children of Israel out of Egypt, now it's leading these uh, Gentiles into the land of Israel to the very presence of the Messiah. So in the ancient world, astronomy, as I said, and astrology were not different disciplines. And just as God would use the profession of shepherds to find the cave in which the Messiah was born, so now he's going to use these astronomer, astrologer types to follow the Shekinah glory to the home where the Messiah is. He's no longer in the stable. He's now in a home, as we'll see as we look at this section. Being Gentiles, of course, the question is, how would they know about the Messianic king? And there are some reasons why they might. First of all, they're coming from the east. And we have the prophet Daniel, who was taken captive into the land of Babylon in the east. And Daniel was not just any old prophet. He was placed as the head of the school of astronomers in the land of Egypt during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Because you remember that when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, none of the wise men... This is so awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, you did. Well, we will see. No, it cracked. Thank you, Jerry. Um, in the case of Daniel, we remember that he was taken into captivity early on when the young... Uh, men of Israel were taken. He was taken with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you remember when, De uh, when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and none of his astronomers, none of his wise men could interpret uh, the dream, couldn't even tell him what the dream was, that Daniel is the one that stood up in defense of the astronomers, of the wise men of Babylon, said not to harm them, and that he was able to tell the dream to the king as well as its meaning and its interpretation. As a result, Daniel chapter 2, he is elevated to be the head of the school of wise men, astronomers, astrologers. So we know that we have Daniel right in its midst. And in Daniel chapter 9, and we're not going to go through this whole passage, but Daniel chapter 9 tells us the prophecy of the 70 weeks of the Messiah's coming. And in that 70-week prophecy... Uh, he's the one prophet that gives us a timetable of Messiah's coming. And Daniel was not written in Israel, as we said, but in the land of Babylon. And half of the book of Daniel is not in Hebrew. It's in Aramaic, the language of the Babylonians. So the Magi coming from the east certainly would have had reason to listen to Daniel's words, or at least read Daniel's uh, book, and acted in regard to it. So they would have had an idea of the timing. And they may have thought somewhere around this time the Messiah needs to appear. And given that this star is unique, leading them, guiding them, directing them, this burning object, this radiance, um, and perhaps it wasn't just seen way off in the distance. We're not really sure how far off they might have seen it. But they are compelled to follow it where it would lead. And it leads them to the Messiah. Two things recorded in the book of Daniel are relevant to the account of the Magi in Matthew 2. First of all, Daniel saved all the wise men that I mentioned, and Daniel became the head of the school of the wise men in Babylon. 
So that's one reason. Another is Balaam was a Babylonian prophet that we read of in the book of Numbers and later is referred to as such in the book of Deuteronomy. And you remember he was hired by Balak, was it, right? What is that? Balak, right? To uh, curse the Israelites as they were coming into the land of Israel or coming through Moab and then into the land of Israel. But every time he would open his mouth to curse Israel, he would bless Israel. And on one of those occasions, he mentions in Numbers chapter 24, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. And so there are two themes that this Gentile prophet makes reference to with regard to the Messianic hope, that a star will come out of Jacob and a scepter. So on the one hand, he has this sense of being of a king because of the scepter and the issue of the star. And the Magi from the east then are saying they followed his star. And it may very well be that what they mean by that is the star that Balaam had spoken about, which was associated with the king of Israel. Remember when he mentions a scepter shall come out of Jacob, that phrase comes right out of the promise that Jacob made to Judah that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until the Messiah would come. And so here in the book of Numbers, you have a Gentile prophet making the same association of the scepter with the star coming out of Jacob, the idea of Israel's king. So the Magi would have had access to both of these passages or both of these prophets' words. And so the Magi follow the star. They go to Jerusalem. And they go to Jerusalem not because that's where they think the Messiah will necessarily be born, but because that is Israel's capital. And the king who is to come, they would think, would surely be reigning from the city of Jerusalem. When they come there, they then ask, where is he that was born king of the Jews? When we read that phrase, we think born now. But that's not what it means. It means the one that has been born as Israel's king. But he was born two years earlier or so. They were not familiar with the words of Micah, interestingly enough, that tells us that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem of Judah. So they didn't have access to all the Hebrew prophets, but they did have access to Daniel. They did have access to this Gentile prophet Balaam. But they weren't familiar with what Micah tells them, and so they ask. And, and when Herod was king and heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And they gathered together all the chief priests, those are the ones that stand over the 24 courses, and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Messiah should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, Mike is very specific, that it's not a, the Bethlehem in the northern part of Israel, but a Bethlehem that is in the land of Judah. And so they now know that they have to head south to Bethlehem. Herod, hearing, and that's what we just read of, hearing of this rival king, he gathers the chief priests and scribes to learn where the Messiah is to be born. Because Herod has his own desires, which are not to worship him, but to somehow get rid of one who might be a challenge to his throne and to his reign. So he wants to know when the star appeared as well. And he learns, according to Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, uh, which is in section 15, 
it says that it was there that he learned that the star appeared two years earlier. Then Herod, when he saw, verse 16, that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceedingly wroth and sent forth and slew all the male children that were in Bethlehem in all the borders thereof from two years old and under according to the time which he had carefully learned of the wise men. So he knew that the child was born at least two years ago. And thus he learned that the star appeared at that time. And that's why he, he commissions those to go through the city of Bethlehem to kill all the male children that are two years old and younger so that he wouldn't miss uh, executing one that might be and would be his rival. So how did the Magi know which child was the Messiah? Because there were, were many children that were perhaps two years old and younger in the city or the village of Bethlehem. The star reappears in verse 9 and it leads the Magi north to south to the city of Bethlehem. And then the text tells us in verse 9 that it stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with great joy and they came into the house and saw the young child. Even this word young child is different than the words that were used to denote the Messiah earlier which speak, spoke of him as a baby or an infant. Now he's not an infant, but he's a young child. He's a bit older. And um, according to Herod's accounting in verse 16, he learned carefully that the child was born two years prior. So they knew where the child was because the Shekinah glory would reveal it or lead it, uh, lead them to, to him. So no longer is the Messiah in the cave, but a private home. And so interestingly enough, the first recorded worship of the Messiah is that of the Magi, Gentile worship, and the first recorded Jewish worship is by shepherds. Both, however, were led by, or it was initiated by the Shekinah glory. When the angels appear and they're sh sh sort of shrouded in the glory of God in the presence of the glory uh, of the Shekinah glory. The gifts that the Magi brought are also uh, interesting. Because first of all, they bring gold, which is a symbol of royalty, kingship. They bring frankincense, which is a symbol of deity used in the offering on the altar of incense. Signifies that the Messiah is not only God, but that he, or king, but that he's also God. And then the myrrh was a symbol of death and sacrifice, which would be used uh, with on the body of the Messiah when the uh, women would go to the tomb. They went with various alloys and myrrh uh, in order to anoint the body. So here it's also kind of neat. You have in the uh, gifts that were given indicators, symbols of various aspects of the Messiah's character. He would be God, he would be king, and yet he would be a sacrifice for us. And then the Magi return in a different way um, from where they had, uh, from the way that they had gotten there. And, and now Herod seeks to kill the child. In section 15, we have the, uh, the killing of the children in Bethlehem. Now, earlier it said that Herod, in chapter 2 of Matthew, um, verse 3, it said that he was troubled verse 3, and all Jerusalem with him. And that's because Herod was a very paranoid individual. 
and he was frightened that this one might take the throne from him. It's interesting that it says, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him, because now we don't know how Herod's going to react. How is he going to deal with this impending fear? And so they figured there's going to be some deaths that are uh, going to be experienced. So all Jerusalem is troubled with him, because they don't know what kind of action he's going to take. But he was known for his paranoia. With some background on Herod, first of all, he killed three of his sons. He killed Mariamne, who was his favorite wife, because he believed she had conspired to assassinate him. It was said by Caesar Augustus that it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Herod was a nominal convert to Judaism, so he figured he wouldn't eat pig. So he wouldn't be the cause of any pigs being killed. But um, So he said it was safer to be his pig than his own son. And here he kills all the male children, two years old and younger. And the reason is because that's when the star appeared to the Magi. And he figured that he would cleanse Bethlehem of all of these children. And the gifts of the Magi would also have a practical benefit for Joseph and Mary. And that is the very valuable gifts. And that would ex- at least be provision for them to get to Jerusalem, uh, to get to Egypt and also to be sustained in this foreign country. In paragraphs 14 through 16, we then deal more with his infancy, but now we focus in, in paragraph 16, uh, on his time in Nazareth. Verse 19 of Matthew 2. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead that sought the young child's life. So again, an angel appears to Joseph. During the whole infancy period of Messiah's life, it's an angel that appears to Joseph and continues to encourage him and gives him direction. Here he tells him, to, uh, the angel tells Joseph to leave Egypt to return to Israel. He tells him that now Herod is dead and therefore the ones that seek the Messiah's life are gone. Herod dies, and his inheritance is divided up between his three sons. Archelaus received control of Judea and Samaria in the south and southern portion of the land of Israel, and he was a cruel overseer based on what we know of him. We know that at his crowning, he had 3,000 Jews killed in the temple during Passover. So Joseph realizes he doesn't want to settle in an area that's controlled by Archelaus or overseen by him, but rather goes into Galilee, which is under the control of Herod Antipas, who is not as uh, cruel as Archelaus was. And so that's where Joseph settles. Remember, Joseph is from Judah and Bethlehem. That's where he normally would go. But because of Archelaus' cruelty, he goes north. Galilee, by the way, was looked upon as uh, was looked upon by the religious leaders in a negative way. Um, there were no rabbinic schools that were established in Galilee at this time. It won't happen till later when the Jewish people are scattered and ultimately dispersed from Jerusalem around 135 by the Romans when they conquer Jerusalem and then expel all the Jewish people from the city. The rabbi said, one of the common phrases that was used at this time said that if you want to gain wealth, you go north. But if you want to gain wisdom, you come south. 
And the important thing, for, term there is the word come, because that's where they are. You know, you come to where we are. So if you want to go wealthy, you go up there. But if you want to gain wisdom and knowledge of the Torah and the law, you come uh, to us. So these are just ways in which Galilee, or being in the north, was a place that was despised and looked down upon. Later, they'll say things like, you know, check and see, no prophet comes from Galilee. Of course, they weren't right about that. There was, uh, the prophet Jonah was from the northern part of Israel, which would have been comparable to the term Galilee, as the term Galilee was used in the first century. So there was a, there was a prophet that came uh, from the north. But um, all those phrases denote how the northern part of Israel, the area of Galilee, was despised and looked down by the others. Now, one of the things that is really kind of neat to look at in this section is the way that Messianic prophecy was used. Because in Matthew's Gospel, each time he will say, this was done to fulfill that which was written by. For example, um, let me see what, what our first one is. If you look at Matthew chapter 2, in paragraph 14, he quotes Micah the prophet. When they are asked, where is the Messiah to be born? He sa the chief priests and scribes say that he is to be born in Bethlehem of Judah. Why? Because it is written by the prophet. And thou, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are no wise least among the princes of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a governor, a prince, who shall shep be shepherd of my people Israel. So when Matthew makes reference to Micah, he's taking a messianic prophecy and he is interpreting it literally. The prophet said he would be born, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem in the south, and if you want to go find him, that's where you have to go, literally. So it's a literal messianic prophecy with a literal fulfillment, or at least that's how we're to understand it. So Micah says that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem of Judah, and Matthew says the Messiah was born in Bethlehem of Judah. What's also interesting about that Matthew passage, in the Hebrew text it says, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And so the word there is the word olam, he's from ever, he's from forever, or from eternity. So it's another one of those unique passages, because it speaks of the birth of the Messiah, and yet at the same time, it says that this one who's to be born in Bethlehem, his origins come from all of eternity. And so right in that passage, you have something of the uniqueness of the character of the Messiah. He is eternal, and yet he has a point in time in which he comes, and a place in time in which he comes into our world. So it's sort of like a cracked door to the deity and humanity of, uh, of our Lord. If you look at... Uh, section paragraph 15 and looking at Matthew chapter 2 verse 16 or so, uh, 15 he then quotes from Hosea 11.1 1, in which he says um, they took the child and brought him into Egypt to escape Herod's designs to execute him that it might be fulfilled verse 15 which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying out of Egypt did I call my son? In this instance, this is not a literal fulfillment of this prophecy. Because Hosea 11.1 1 is a statement about the deliverance of the people of Israel out of Egypt. 
And Israel is made reference to as God's son. When Moses is told by God to go to Pharaoh, he's to say, tell Pharaoh, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And if you don't let him go to worship me in the wilderness, I will slay your son, even your firstborn. So in one sense, Israel is the national, maybe we might say, son of God. And so what I think Matthew is doing is he's lining up sort of a type that just as Israel was in Egypt as the national son of God and called and delivered, called by God and delivered by God out of Egypt, so now the son of God, that perfect Israelite that Israel as a nation sort of anticipates that, you know, in John for example, chapter 15, the Lord refers to himself as the true vine, and we are the branches. When he says that he is the true vine, he's making a statement about being what Israel was intended to be but was not. So that the reference to the vine and the grapevine throughout the prophets is always a symbol of the people of Israel and God's planting of a vineyard. But in each instance, you'll find that the vine grows wild and does not sort of behave as the gardener intended the vine to behave or to grow as the gardener intended the vine to grow. And so Israel was like a wild vine that went astray. But the Messiah comes and he is the true vine. He's the vine that does not go astray, that obeys the Lord and follows uh, him in every way and does and accomplishes his will. So in that sense, the Messiah is the true Israelite. So like his predecessor or like the nation that he has come to redeem, he too has come out of Egypt and has been led forth by uh, God as the angel informs Joseph to bring the people out of the land of Egypt or to bring Messiah out of the land of Egypt. So Hosea refers to the Exodus and the deliverance of Israel, the national son of God, and Matthew quotes that passage to apply it to the messianic son of God who returns from Egypt to Israel like Israel had done as well. So he calls attention to the similarity of Israel as a nation and the Messiah of Israel who is to redeem the nation. When you look at Matthew chapter 2 and his quoting of Jeremiah, you now have sort of a messianic prophecy and an application of the truths of that prophecy or that literal prophecy with regard to uh, the Messiah. So if you look at chapter 2 verse 17, when the children that were two years old and young, younger were slaughtered by Herod's soldiers. It says, Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she would not be comforted because they are not or they are no more. Now, the account of Jeremiah was seeing the people of Israel or the young men of Israel that had fought against the Babylonians lose in the battle and are now taken as prisoners. And as they are brought into exile to the land of Babylon, they move through the city or village of Ramah 
and the Jewish women of the village of Ramah see their sons being taken into captivity and they weep over the loss of their children, although they're adult soldiers, but they weep over the loss of their sons knowing that they will no longer see them ever again. The application that Matthew makes with this prophecy is that just like the women of Israel during the time, or the women of Judah during the time of the Babylonian exile and defeat of various Jewish armies and the weeping that occurred, so similarly, the women not of Ramah, but of Bethlehem, seeing their children not marched off, but slaughtered, causes them to weep with the same kind of intensity that their four daughters, I guess you say, or their predecessors had, had wept. So here it's an application of the prophecy. In other words, it's not a literal fulfillment, but it's an application of a literal account of what had transpired during the time of Jeremiah. So the current event of Jeremiah's own time Israel was taken into captivity to Babylon and the surviving soldiers, those Jews that were taken into captivity, marched through Ramah where Rachel is buried en route to Babylon. It's another interesting thing. Rachel was not buried in Bethlehem, although oftentimes when you visit Israel, you go to Bethlehem and you see the tomb of of, uh, Rachel, but she was actually buried in Ramah. And here's another interesting thing about this. Rachel over time becomes a symbol of Jewish motherhood. So that you see in the book of Ruth, you know, the blessing that's pronounced upon Ruth is that you might be like Leah and you might be like Rachel that gave birth to the tribes of Israel, essentially. So in a way, the idea is Jewish motherhood weeping over their sons being taken into captivity to Babylon and Jewish motherhood weeping over these children in Bethlehem who are being slaughtered by Herod. So Rachel becomes a symbol of Jewish motherhood and Matthew applies Jeremiah's statement to the Jewish mothers mourning the death of their children in Bethlehem. So in this prophecy, the details are all different except for one, the weeping of the mothers. But all the others are different. In the Jeremiah passage, the location is Ramah, but in the Matthew passage, the location is Bethlehem. In Jeremiah, sons are taken into captivity. In Matthew, sons are killed. In Jeremiah, the sons are adult prisoners. In Matthew, the sons are two years old and younger. But what's similar is that they all, the women weep over what's happening. The point of agreement is the weeping by Jewish mothers for the children they will never see again. And then another example, by the way, of this is like in Joel's passage that's quoted in Acts chapter 2. Remember when the Spirit of God is poured out upon Peter and he stands up and he proclaims the good news and individuals are speaking in languages that they've not learned. And so when they say, what is going on here? Uh, Peter says, this is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. But in the Joel passage, there are other things that go on. In the Joel passage, it says that the sun no longer gives its light, the moon turns to blood, and all kinds of you know, uh, wild things occur. The point that Luke is making and that Peter is stating when he quotes the passage is not that everything about the Joel passage is now being fulfilled. What he's saying is 
the manifestation of the Spirit of God that is similar in both passages is what is occurring. But not the complete fulfillment of Joel is now fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. The, the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 will be completely fulfilled when the Messiah returns. But there's a similarity of what Joel says will happen when Messiah returns and what is transpiring before your eyes right now is the Spirit of God is being poured out upon uh, the followers of Messiah. There's unique manifestations of the Spirit. In the case of Joel, it's going to have phenomenal uh, impacts on the sun, the moon, the stars. In Acts chapter 2, the working of God's Spirit is having a phenomenal impact on the followers of Messiah so that they are speaking languages that they had not learned. So the point of similarity between Joel and Acts is the outpouring of the Spirit of God, which was to be accompanied by unusual manifestations. But the manifestations are completely different. So the last one uh, prophecy that Matthew makes reference to is found in paragraph 16, and it comes at the end of the section, verse 23, where it says that when Joseph took Yeshua and Mary into Nazareth, he says that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets that he should be called a Nazarene. And um, there are a couple of things to take note of here. First, notice in verse 23 that this is the one passage where Matthew doesn't say spoken by the prophet, but he uses the word plurals, spoken by the prophets. So in this instance, Matthew doesn't have any one particular prophecy in mind like the others which he quotes, but rather something of a summary of what the prophets have been teaching. So what, did, what do the prophets teach regarding the Messiah that is indicated by his dwelling in Nazareth? I think what he probably is referring to is that the Messiah would be despised and rejected by others much as the inhabitants of Galilee, Nazareth being a city in Galilee, were despised and rejected by the rest of the people living in Israel. As I said, people looked down upon the area of Galilee and they looked down upon those particularly that came from the city of Nazareth. So in this instance, no specific prophet is mentioned and no particular passage is in mind, but there's a summary of what the prophets had taught. A Nazarene in the first century was looked down upon, and just as one from Nazareth would be looked down upon, the Messiah would be utterly despised and rejected. As I was sharing Sunday, just as it speaks of the Messiah's great exaltation, Isaiah 53 speaks also of the Messiah's great humiliation, that he would be so um, victimized that he would not even be recognized as, uh, as a man. So the Judeans looked down upon the Galileans and the Galileans looked down upon uh, those that came from Nazareth. And so these that, so then this passage or these passages, prophetic passages, summarize something of how the Messiah would be characterized in that he would be despised and he would be rejected by others. So these four ways of interpreting the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah were common in the interpretation of uh, prophecies by 
rabbinic Judaism or by Judaism of its day. This, what the rabbi said, is according to Arnold Fruchtenbaum, and some of these things I knew, but not all of them, but the technical term, he tells us, for this was called pardes, because these four letters uh, make like an, an anagram. Each letter stands for a different word. So, for example, the pay stands for the word pshat, which referred to the literal interpretation of a text. So when you, in other words, we're dealing now with hermeneutics. How do you interpret the Bible? Matthew chapter 2 gives us four ways of interpreting messianic prophecy. Some messianic prophecy can be interpreted literally. And perhaps like Zechariah 9 where it says that the Messiah would come as a king riding on a donkey. You know, maybe that's sort of a literal interpretation of a straight literal interpretation of that passage. Some passages cannot be interpreted literally like that. Some are typological, such as out of Egypt I've called forth my son. Israel becomes a type of the Messiah, and that just as Israel came out of Egypt, so the Messiah would come out of Egypt. Another way of interpreting uh, a passage. Or a passage might be interpreted in terms of an application, that what was true of the women in Jeremiah's day would be true of the women of Bethlehem when the Messiah was born in Messiah's, Messiah's day. So sort of like an applicational fulfillment of a messianic prophecy. Or in this case, it's just a summary. It's to fulfill what the prophets had said about the Messiah, that he would be despised and rejected by others. These four ways of interpreting a passage but, or four ways in which passages could be interpreted are four ways that the rabbis had taught the scripture could be interpreted. So they sort of are manifesting this Jewish method of interpretation. So the reish in pardes stands for this word that means a hint. And it stands for a typological, that the passage gives us a hint of what is being intended. Uh, by its fulfillment. Or the drash has to do with the application of a given passage uh, to, uh, to the life of an individual. Oftentimes when rabbis are speaking in the synagogue, this is what they focus upon. They look at a passage, how do we apply this to our lives? And the, the last term, the sod, is uh, a secret. It refers to that summarization um, as Matthew depicts it. The point is that Matthew is not doing something that is contrary to the way in which Jewish people understood or attempted to understand a given passage of Scripture during his lifetime and during the time of his writing. So whenever you look at the Brit HaDashah, whenever you look at the New Covenant Scriptures and they quote the Old Testament, they quote the Hebrew Scriptures in fulfilling a prophecy, you have to ask yourself, does Paul or Peter or John mean to convey a literal one-to-one -one correspondence? Do they mean to suggest that this is uh, connected in a typological fashion? Do they mean to suggest that this is to be in terms of application or summarization? So you have to ask that question. Now one other thing that's important here is the, the fact that Matthew does that with these passages does not necessarily give us permission to do that. You know, because this is the inspired text. So now the Spirit of God is moving upon Matthew. 
he's looking at these passages and he's led to understand them in in these ways. So we have to sort of do our due diligence of study to step back and see how is Paul using this passage or John because they don't necessarily tell us. Or to put it another way, if we were studying the book of Hosea and we didn't have Matthew, we would not look at Hosea and say, oh, the Messiah is going to come out of Egypt. You know, we wouldn't know that because the passage in Hosea without Matthew doesn't say, oh, by the way, this is a typological you know, look toward the future. Hosea doesn't tell us that. He just says what he says. And if we're interpreting Hosea, we would say he's speaking about the Exodus. It is now Matthew, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, who looks at that passage and says, you know, just like the Israelites came out of Egypt, so Messiah comes out of Egypt and he applies that text in a typological way. In other words, Matthew is not telling us we should interpret Hosea 11.1 about Messiah coming out of Egypt. He's telling us Israel coming out of Egypt is is a type of Messiah coming out of Egypt. So, um, I don't know, I hope that's that's in some degree. But this is really fascinating, isn't it? As you look through these passages, and it helps us to understand how the writers of the New Testament looked back at the Hebrew Scriptures and were able to make those kinds of connections. When we look at paragraph 17, we're coming into now the childhood of Messiah. In Luke chapter 2, verse 40, paragraph 17, it says the child grew and became strong, was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Luke, as his theme, the Messiah, the Son of Man, focuses on the humanity of Messiah. And he alone provides a statement like this in which it summarizes his development of his first 12 years of life. Because in verse 41 of Luke chapter 2, he's going to then tell us uh, that he was 12 years old when his parents, Mary, Miriam and Joseph, go up to eat, uh, go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so, if we were to look at Yeshua's home life, what was a Jewish life like in the first century? We know this much: Yeshua was raised in a Jewish home and in a spiritual or believing home, because it says in verse 41, paragraph 18 now. But it says in verse 41 that his parents went every year to Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover. And according to Deuteronomy 16, there are three festivals that all Jewish men, particularly, were to go up to Jerusalem to observe. The three pilgrimage festivals, Passover, Shavuot, or Pentecost, and Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. So three times they were to come up to Jerusalem, and that's why the crowds swell in Jerusalem on those occasions and why there were so many present at the time that Messiah was crucified because it was uh, was during Passover. But verse 41 says that every year Mary and Joseph took Yeshua and went up to Jerusalem to observe uh, Passover. So they were a spiritual home. These were believing individuals. They knew what the scriptures taught and they were obeying them. According to tradition, when a Jewish child was five years old, that's when he first began to be introduced to the study of Scripture in a more formal sort of environment that would have been available in Nazareth or in the outlying areas. 
by the time they were 10, it was then that they were introduced to the oral traditions or the oral law. According to Jewish tradition, that two laws were given to Israel or Moses on Mount Sinai. There was the written law, which is what we have inscripturated in the Bible. And then there was what is referred to as the oral law, or at least what the rabbis refer to as the oral law, which is embodied in the Talmud, the Mishnah and the Gomorrah. And according to rabbinic uh, tradition, the oral law is as authoritative and inspired as the written law. That's where we part company, right? Because we understand that it is all scripture is inspired by God, and the oral law is not, is not scripture. But I remember in one conversation with uh, some Jewish people that I had that were uh, staunch supporters of the idea that the oral law was given by God, they made the argument that, this is how the analogy they made, they said the Bible is like the game. And the oral law is like the instructions on how to play the game. So you imagine the Bible is Monopoly and the oral law are the instructions in the game of Monopoly to tell us how to play the game. And that's the way he tried to explain it. Um, of course, that's, you know, the analogy falls short. But the point here is that at 10 years old, a child then is introduced to the oral law and the traditions uh, that are contained therein. At 12, he would be apprenticed in a, in a profession Either he would stay at home and learn the profession of his father. So it's interesting that Yeshua has made reference to as, is this not the son of Joseph? Is this not the carpenter's son? So is that an indication that perhaps he stayed at home to learn Joseph's profession uh, in addition to his knowledge of, of Scripture? It's possible. We don't know for sure. Or you might go to another and learn that one's profession, or you would continue to study the law for the next 12 uh, years or so, and at the end of which, you would then be ordained as a formal rabbi. With Messiah, we're going to come to this, but with uh, the Lord Yeshua, Isaiah 50 is such a, a neat passage. I'd made to make reference to it last Sunday, and I, I forgot, I just didn't. But in Isaiah chapter 50, which is one of those wonderful passages of the servant of the Lord, I was talking about how Messiah is the servant of the Lord. Isaiah 50 is where it says of the Messiah as the servant of the Lord that the Lord wake, woke him up morning by morning to, taught him, to teach him his word. So Messiah was personally discipled by the Father morning by morning in the teachings of the word of God. But in any case, at 12, he would make a decision regarding what path he would take, what profession, or whether he would continue to study. That's important when we get to a paragraph 18, because we see the profession that Messiah devotes himself to. And we'll see that in a moment before we, we uh, conclude. But Isaiah, oh, I guess here, here it is. Isaiah speaks of the servant of the Lord. That's his common phrase for the Messiah of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 50... Verses 4 through 9, the Messiah's mission is presented to us. And uh, if let, let me turn, turn to that. If you have your Bibles, you can, you can turn there with me. In Isaiah chapter 50, it says, The Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. 
He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. This section is about the Messiah's commission. What is he commissioned to do? He's commissioned to give himself to be abused by others, though he is innocent. His commission or his mission is to suffer in behalf of others. Here it focuses on the suffering as an innocent one. And so Messiah was discipled by the Lord day by day, morning by morning, in the study and understanding of God's Word. From one sense, from a human perspective, he is learning God's Word. On the other hand, from a divine perspective, he certainly knows all things, and he knows the Word. You know, I'm not, I'm not really certain. Do you have any ideas on that? Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, and when we look at Isaiah 52, 53, and we see other passages in Isaiah, like Isaiah 40, 42, I think it is, 44, you know, in some of those cases, the servant can't be. Israel, because it goes on to say that he would redeem Israel, you know, and uh, so I'm not exactly sure, I but I can check that out. You know. Now, uh, again, talking about the mission, that he's discipled by the Lord, the Lord teaches him his word, and teaches him what his purpose is, what he's to do, and he's to endure physical suffering, we read that in verse 5, and that he would, uh, Messiah did not shield himself, he gave himself, you know, these phrases are really uh, quite remarkable. He offers his back to those who beat him, he offers his cheeks, he says, I did not hide my face, this is a willingness to suffer. And that's what uh, the Lord's commission to our Messiah is. That he wouldn't shield himself for the abuse, and the Lord would strengthen him to uh, accomplish the task and to uh, endure. So with respect to the Messiah's divine nature, he knows everything, and yet with respect to his human nature, he was taught by the Lord. Of course, we see all of these kind of paradoxes. You know, there'll be times when he gets hungry. That's with respect to his humanity. But with respect to his deity, he certainly doesn't always need to eat. Um, certainly, as God, he cannot die. But with respect to his humanity, he can suffer and die for our sins. Now, that's about as far as we can take it. You know, you can't scrutinize that too much deeper. And it's the distinction between believing what Messiah has done in our behalf and attempting to understand how it is that he has done it. 
You know, we can't always understand the howness of something, but that doesn't mean we can't trust in the whatness of that which he does. So the scripture tells us what he did was to die on our behalf. We can trust in that if we so choose. And we can trust in that even without understanding how it is that he has done that. Because that's not what scripture explains to us. It only takes us uh, so far. But by 12, Yeshua understood the Father's will and he understood his calling. Because section 18 tells us that. He says, did you not know that I must be about my Father's business? By 12, he's chosen his profession or vocation, as it were. And that is to do what the Lord has taught him through his word to do, which was to offer himself as a sacrifice, to be in the temple and to be divulging the truths that he has been learning day by day, morning by morning, and ultimately to die in our behalf. So in chapter 18, we know, uh, let me just conclude this, then we'll see what time it is. But um, in paragraph 18, verse 41, we know Yeshua was raised in an observant home. Because three times a year, an observant family would go up to Jerusalem for Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. And it was customary to bring one's child to Jerusalem for Passover when the child would turn 12, young one year before he would become a man, before he would become a son of the law. And it was common to travel in groups because it could be a dangerous trip in some of the roadways and also to travel with one's family and in a community. And when returning to Nazareth from Jerusalem, Joseph and Miriam, after their, th their time in the Passover, which might have been seven, eight days or so, when they are returning, it says that Joseph and Miriam traveled one day, in verse 43, and they did not realize their son wasn't with them. When they had fulfilled the days as they were returning, the boy Yeshua tarried behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. Now, they didn't know it because they're traveling in these large groups. And so as they, they figure that, you know, that Yeshua is with one of the family members or one of our neighbors, one of our friends. But now the day goes, and they look for him. They don't find him. So at the end of their day's journey, they realize that Yeshua is not with them. So they're going to spend the night where they are. And then they travel back to Jerusalem, so that's two days, travel back to Jerusalem the following day in order to try to locate him. And then the text says that they had to look for him for three more days before they found him. So we don't know where they looked, but they didn't go to the temple. And when Miriam and Joseph then finally find him, he's in the temple with the experts, the, uh, I think King James says doctors, of the law, and they are ones that are experts in the interpretation of the law. And the thing that is astonishing everyone is that at 12, as one that is just beginning to embark, as it were, on the study of the Word of God, Yeshua is both understanding what these experts are saying, and he's also raising questions that are helping to clarify these ideas more fully and more completely. So much so that all were amazed at his answers. And the reason they were so amazed was because God had taught him. And he had listened to what the Lord was teaching. This is very similar in the book of Acts, isn't it? When the disciples early on, two or three, they say, 
when they began to share, they said that they perceived that these, these disciples had spent a lot of time with Yeshua. And they wondered how it was that they could know so much. Well, they said, well, they spent a lot of time with him, so he must have taught them pretty well and uh, taught them extensively. So the Father taught Yeshua through his word, and they were amazed. Yeshua taught his disciples, and the people were amazed. And so if we would allow the Holy Spirit to teach us as we come to his word through gifted teachers as well, uh, we can cause that same kind of amazement, and I'm sure many of us have, to others as we share the word. And they would say, how do you know that? How did you learn that? Where did you find that? Well, a lot of that is simply because God is instructing us through his word and through gifted individuals that he's gifted with the gifts of teaching. Mary then asks, Miriam asks, where were you? And Yeshua points out that God is his father. He said, I must be about my father's business. And he said, thus he was in his father's house, in the temple. And he says this in a way that it conveys the idea that Miriam should have known where to find him. For he's following in the occupation, as 12, you've got to choose your profession. He says, I'm going to do what my father does. And what is that? But to teach the word, understand it, and then he's going to follow him where he would lead. So at 12, a Jewish boy determines his vocation. Yeshua states his vocation. I'm doing my father's work or my father's business, and that is to fulfill the will of my father. Not my will be done, as he will say in the Garden of Gethsemane, but thy will be done. By 12, Yeshua clearly recognizes his relationship with God the Father as the one who will give his life a ransom for many. He may have understood this way before, but we know that by 12 he does because it's at this occasion that he makes that statement. And then last uh, section here, verse 19, it says, um, it, oh, in verse 51, and this is kind of interesting too, it, it then states, um, and he went down, with, in verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he was subject unto them, and his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. The idea that the Son of God would submit himself to his mother and father, the superior to the inferior, um, speaks volumes about him doing the will of his father. You know, the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, and Messiah is doing just that. And he does that at his death as well, because at the cross, right, he says to John, uh, mother behold your son and to John um, son behold your mother or whatever but the point is again that sense of honoring and caring for and, and uh, bearing responsibility for one's father and mother loving them as to make provision such as Yeshua does in verse 52 Yeshua we are told develops advances verse 52 in wisdom in stature in favor with God and man so he grows in these four areas of development that we all have to grow in. He grows intellectually. He grows physically. He grows spiritually, favor with God. And he grows socially, also with other people. It's that last one that's particularly intriguing to me and perhaps probably to most of us. We ex would expect him in terms of his spirituality and his intelligence we expect that um, we would expect he's going to grow physically that that too we don't know how tall or short he was but he had to be 
uh, a man of great physical strength because he endures some incredible mistreatment, doesn't he? And uh, after being uh, scourged and whipped and mistreated and all that, he's still carrying this heavy cross and able to bear that through half his trek through the city of Jerusalem and only at that point falls to the ground uh, utterly exhausted. And even on the cross, after all of that, he still doesn't die, but rather gives up. You know, it, In other words, all of that doesn't even kill him, but rather he gives up himself and gives his life for us when he says, uh, it is finished. You know, No man takes my life, I give it. So even all of that, in his, with respect to his physical nature, uh, he was able to endure. So he had to be uh, incredibly powerful and strong. Uh, but the last one is one that we ought not miss either, and that is developing social graces. You know, being able to interact with people of all different backgrounds. You know, he could deal with people on the street like prostitutes. He could deal with professional, you know, uh, wealthy individuals that have accomplished great as he deals with noblemen. Uh, he can mingle with royalty as he deals with the Herods and uh, the Pilots, you know, with uh, great grace, you know, and savviness. He can deal with fishermen and just hard blue-collar workers. Uh, he can deal with crazy people, right, as he deals with the uh, man of Gadara who's living in tombs and cutting himself and is chained. I mean, it's quite amazing because there's a lot of these kinds of people, you know, I see them and say, I'm going the other side of the street. <laughs> and, you know, that might not be a foolish thing to do. That may be a wise thing to do. I'm not suggesting we all of a sudden should, you know, make ourselves vulnerable to people who might mistreat us and harm us. But it's still intriguing, isn't it, that the Messiah could move in all spheres, all social levels. And he could be involved at parties and have a good time. You know, he doesn't seem to be awkward at parties. He talks, he converses with people. People come around him. And then he gets a reputation for being so good at partying that they say, you know, he's a wine-bibber and a glutton. You know, far be it that any of us should be thought of as gluttons. But yet, that's what he was known for. Why? Because he was always seen eating. And he was always seen drinking. He was with people. And he knew how to move in all of those spheres without, you know, somehow violating holiness. Without violating his Father's will. And it's, I think, an important thing that we become like that. It's very easy to be black and white and say, believers don't do that. And yet, Yeshua does do those things that most of us as believers would say they don't do those things, you know. He's right there in the midst of it. And so I think it's a healthy thing to grow socially. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. And Messiah himself so grew and so developed. And we do too because we have to be social people. You know, we're to go into all the world and proclaim the good news. We are in the world, but not of the world. And so we have to learn over time, I suppose, how to do that. But Yeshua does, and he does it in quite remarkable ways, and ways I'm sure that you and I, if we didn't have all this and saw it, we would be saying the same kinds of things about him. You know, he can't be a holy man and do that. 
So, kind of a funny thing. My personal story, I think I mentioned one Sunday when I went to um, visit Jody in the hospital. They, w- they wouldn't let me up because I didn't look like a pastor. You know, I just didn't fit the bill. You're not supposed to wear jeans and, you know, and a T-shirt. And even though I had a jacket, and I, you know, they just wouldn't believe me. And uh, that's okay. Um, in some ways, I like that. But, um, you know, it's because we have certain preconceptions about what it means to be a person of God. And it doesn't mean to be anything other than who you are, you know, interacting with individuals, loving one another, connecting with people, and doing so in a way that doesn't dishonor the Lord. And we all have to sort of navigate through those waters and help each other do the same. Well, listen, let's pray, and we'll call it an evening. Father, we thank you for this night. We are grateful for our Messiah. What exciting events surround his life at every phase of it. Magi coming from the east because of their knowledge of your word as found in Daniel and as stated by Balaam. Putting that all together and then being open to you and seeing your own Shekinah glory manifesting itself and then having the faith to follow it and to come before you and to be one of the first among the Gentiles to kneel in worship and in praise and in the giving of gifts to you in honor. And then, Father, we thank you for what we learn about Messianic prophecy and how to interpret your word. And that it's not a simple task, but it can sometimes be very complex. So we need you to be our teacher, even as you were Messiah's teacher. So as we come to your word each time, may you fill us with your spirit and open our hearts and our minds to its truths. And then, Father, like Messiah who had to make a decision, what vocation, what direction to go, Lord, may we make the same decision with regard to whatever vocational choices we might make. May we never compromise our choice to follow you and to live for you. And so help us to navigate through the challenges of growing in a world that's in rebellion against you. May we grow socially with our neighbors and thus love them as ourselves and bring the good news to them. May we grow spiritually and grow deeper and deeper in the knowledge of your word and in the knowledge of you and in our experiences with you. And may it result in our living a life that others may take a look at and become aware that that life is lived because you have directed it. And may it lead some to embrace you in fullness and with great joy and thanksgiving. So, Lord, we give you praise. Thank you for your word to us this evening, for we pray in Yeshua's name. And we also pray, Lord, that you'll grant us a safe trip home, we ask. For we ask in Yeshua's name.